0: It's a real joy and a privilege to uh, bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, I'll be preaching from 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 1. So if you could please open up there, that'll be great. Also, if you could keep open your Bibles um, as we go through the sermon. The sermon this morning will essentially just be a close reading of this passage. So it'll be really good for you to uh, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there are some um, at the back table, and um, you're welcome to pick one up, and of course also just hang on to it uh, afterwards, I'll give to you. Um, The passage we will be reading is uh, very much part of the Apostle Paul's farewell to his protege and follower, Timothy. Uh, Paul realizes that his time is short, he's in fact writing this from uh, prison. Um, And he wants Timothy to continue in the faith and to also carry on his his ministry. Um, So all of 2 Timothy is, in a sense, a a charge to Timothy to do certain things, to believe to certain things, to have certain attitudes. However, Paul also wants Timothy to be very realistic about what might lie ahead. Uh, And hence, here, a reminder of the fact that it will probably not always be, uh, be plain sailing. Uh, and Paul then, therefore, gives Timothy some direction. He gives him some metaphors to try and understand what the Christian life uh, and the life of ministry will be like. Now, of course, a lot of this is directly Paul to Timothy, but there's uh, also many, many principles that we can glean from this that will be useful uh, to our lives as disciples of Jesus. So I'm going to pray and then ask Ezra to read this passage for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is living and active. Uh, We thank you for its reliability and its truth. And so as we open your holy infallible word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us from it and that you will also grant us the ability to understand and to apply what we hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ezra.
1: To Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory.
0: Thanks, Ezra. Since I uh, teach history, I thought I'll um, begin this sermon with a uh, bit of a a historical snippet, Um, and it is specifically drawn from the uh, history of the internet. Uh, Let me take you way, way, way back to uh, 2015, uh, (laughs) which in internet, internet terms is, of course, ancient history. In that year, you couldn't go on to YouTube without seeing a video that became famous or infamous as uh, Here in My Garage. Um, In it, an internet marketer by the name of Ty Lopez stood in his garage, uh, marketing his course entitled 67 Steps, that's weirdly specific, to wealth, health, love, and happiness. And as he was doing so, he was kind of gazing lovingly over his shoulder at his Lamborghini um, parked right behind him so far so standard i guess um but what made this video truly weird is that he often also then looked to the other side to a shelf groaning with books that he claimed to have read and i'm sure the bibliophiles among you are becoming a bit queasy at this point um storing books in a garage is not you know a great idea but um the, the message seemed to have been uh, take this course and you can also store your tesla with your tolstoy you will have the perfect life. Admittedly, this is a bit of an extreme example, but the idea of selling health, wealth, and the pursuit of happiness is very much at the heart of modern marketing. Possibly Lopez to get a little bit too far, but you know this is the kind of message that we are absolutely bombarded with. There are certain things, certain silver bullets that you know, will give us everything we want, that will realize all of our dreams. Follow me, do this thing, buy my product, and instant happiness will follow. Unfortunately, many people are tempted to think of the Christian faith in this way. Sadly, many Christians even try to present the gospel in these terms. However, let us contrast this message Silver bullet to instant happiness, to no problems, to plain sailing, to Paul's words to Timothy that Ezra just read for us. Paul is in prison, which automatically entails challenges, suffering, being constrained in what you're able to do. And at the heart of the suffering that Paul is enduring is not a mistake that he made, is not some criminality in his past or whatever. It is the gospel. It is the message that he was called on to take into this world. The life-giving message of Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. And he's saying to Timothy, I want you to take this gospel and share it, live it, go into the world with it. And oh, by the way, you will suffer. This is a massive contrast to what we just heard about the world's approach, Paul seems to be saying, join me, do what I do, and suffer. And see to it that you patiently endure that suffering. On the face of it, this does not seem like the most appealing marketing pitch, does it? However, once we understand how Paul is motivating this call, it makes perfect sense. And that's what I will be trying to do this morning. I will specifically, kind of in the middle of the sermon, focus on three key metaphors that Paul uses to describe the Christian life. That of being a soldier, of being a farmer, and of being an athlete. But before we get there, just two general remarks. One about the context of what Paul is saying, and one about the attitude that we should have as we learn more about Jesus and as we progress on the way of discipleship. Let's say a few words just about the context of what Paul is saying. Um, he starts this passage with the words, you then. In other words, there's a bit of a contrast being played out here. Um, you need to be, in other words, somewhat different to, to someone else. Um, who are they? In a nutshell, Paul profiled three people in the sentences just before our passage starts. They were phygeles, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus. These men went in very different directions. Phygellus and Hermogenes went their own way. In other words, they deserted Paul. Onesiphorus, on the other hand, Paul says, refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. In saying you then, Paul is obviously clearly asking Timothy to make his own choices. Uh, he's saying to him, essentially, stick with me. Do not be like those who deserted. Be like Onesiphorus, be strong, and specifically, be strong in the grace of Christ. Secondly, something about Timothy's attitude about what he heard from Paul and about uh, what he's learning in the journey of following Jesus. Paul makes it very clear in verse 2 that Timothy is not to be selfish in what is learning. A lot of the growth that the world seeks and that it is marketing to us can be labeled as self-improvement. Do this for you. Become a better you. Uh, Be a better person through doing X, Y, or Z. However, as Paul shares these gospel truths with Timothy, he doesn't only have Timothy in mind. He's not simply saying to Timothy, Timothy, you'll be so much better (laughs) for following this message. He clearly counsels Timothy, calls on him even, to take others with him. As Paul here says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, verse 2 again, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. This is a key verse for those of us involved in training people for gospel ministry. The core message here is really pass it on, but pass it on in such a way that people will also be able to pass it on in turn, who will be able to train others. However, I do not believe that the application of this verse is only uh, in the area of ministry training. I believe that it can be applied to all areas of the Christian life. What we learn, we are to give to others. So much so that we can even reduce this idea to a bit of shorthand. I was once at a conference in Zambia, and uh, a brother there told me that he had a tutu ministry. It took me a real long while to figure out what on earth he was talking about. You know, did he incorporate ballet? Was he uh, a follower of the former Archbishop of Cape, of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu? Um, neither of those things he turned out. Um, he was of course referring to, to Timothy Tutu, Tutu. Um, what he meant to say was that whenever he learned something, whenever he grasped the new gospel truth, he asked himself the question, how can I actually teach this to others in a way that they would be able to pass on? In this attitude, we can see one of the keys to the expansion of the Christian faith throughout the centuries. People receiving the message and teaching others, telling it to others. People telling the gospel to other people. People building other people up in the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, when your faith deepens, when you learn any new truth, when you deepen in your relationship with Christ, in whatever way, pass it on. It's not only for us. It's not only for our own self-improvement. Okay, so with these two remarks uh, covered, the, the context of what Paul is saying and also the attitude that uh, Timothy should receive this with, um, let's now come to what uh, might be called the, the highlights reel of metaphors for the life of discipleship. Paul here brings to the mind of Timothy three images that are used in many, many other places in the Bible uh, when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they are the fact that Christians, disciples, are like soldiers. They are like athletes. They are like farmers. Again, we could spend lots of time you know, looking at different passages of the Bible where um, these ideas are, are further expounded. But For the moment, let's just focus on on this passage, and note how what Paul is saying with these metaphors are again linked to the fact that he's calling Timothy to be willing to face challenges, to make sacrifices, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Um, So let's start with the idea of disciples being soldiers. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There are many things clamoring for the ultimate loyalty of the Christian, even some very good things. But Paul's main point with the soldier metaphor is, as Christians, we should remember where our ultimate loyalties are, who we should ultimately be uh, obedient to. We are in the service of Christ, and we should take our marching orders from him. As Paul says here, The soldier intends or should seek to please the one who enlisted him. He should follow the orders of of his commander. No soldier on active duty uh, can simply say to his commanding officer, look, um, I want to go and play Call of Duty with my mates. I'm I'm not really interested in this real war thing going on. Um, So please do excuse me. It doesn't work like that. Uh, There's an implicit idea of obedience. We are in the service of Christ, and we are called to obey him. In perhaps one of the saddest passages in the Gospels, Jesus said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say? Luke six, verse forty-six. Jesus calls us to obedience. In fact, as he sends his disciples out into the world in Matthew 28. From the 16 onwards, the so-called Great Commission, uh, calling on them to make disciples of all nations. One element of that Great Commission is obedience, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. So the main takeaway of the soldier metaphor is obedience. Maybe not a word that's greatly in fashion uh, in, in our modern society, but a word that is definitely biblical. Being a believer means to obediently follow what Jesus commanded us to do. Like a good soldier follows the orders of his or her commanding officer. This brings us to the second metaphor, that of being an athlete. And I believe the key takeaway here is the idea of discipline. Paul makes it clear that athletes are supposed to compete according to to the rules. In many ways, we sometimes feel justified to break or bend the rules a little when, when things perhaps get um, a little difficult, or even to play by our own rules. But it doesn't work like that, does it? Think of a, a netballer uh, whose team is trailing, who suddenly decides, I'm not playing netball anymore, I'll follow basketball rules, and you know who take a shot then from the middle of the court. In case you don't know the rules of netball, big no-no. It doesn't work like that. Um, And and Paul here is essentially saying, make sure that you play by the rules, that you follow um, what has been set out for you. And and Paul expresses this idea as well in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. He says, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth, we will recommend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The main takeaway here, again, is discipline. To do the right thing in the right way at the right time. In practice, it means working out what those right things are as far as the Christian life is concerned. And and it's not hard to get there. The Lord, in his mercy, um, showed us the way of being a disciple. It includes things like immersing ourselves in God's Word, meeting with God's people, praying for God's grace and for this world. And I can go on and on. These are some of the basics, the basic things related to discipline that we need to do as believers. And being an athlete means to actually do that. Soldier, athlete, farmer. Third metaphor is that of agriculture. I'm not a farming expert, of course, but uh, think for a moment of a farmer looking across a new field, an unplowed field, maybe you know, lots of uh, trees and brushes or bushes and things still in there. And the farming farmer asking himself the question, uh, "What do I need to do to get a crop?" from this field? What do I need to get a crop from this field? Uh, And, again, not being an an expert, I think, you know, I I know a part of the answer, at least. Um, It will almost, in all cases, be the same. What will it take? Hard work over a long time. It will take effort. Sure, some better and scientific farming methods might help, but the bedrock will be hard work at times when it is needed most. And this is why Paul explicitly references the idea of farmers working hard. The hard-working farmer should receive the reward, he says. This aspect of farming is not spectacular. The spectacular side is perhaps, you know, someone right on the other end of the production process, you know, making amazing meals and impressing people with that. But, you know, the, the hard work is just day in, day out, doing what is essential. So let's spin this question around. Um, what will it take to gain a gospel harvest in our own lives or in our community, as we, if we think corporately as a church? There are many answers we can give to this question, but I believe somewhere in there will have to be the same answer that the farmer gets looking over his field. Hard work over a long time. Sure, God can sometimes in his mercy, grant times of exceptional growth that just astound us uh, and, and may have very little to do with our hard work. But in many cases, he makes use of our work, our effort, uh, in a mysterious way, but in a very real way. So often what will be required in answering God's call is faithful labor, year in, year out, through the ups, through the downs, Being obedient and faithful. In a metaphor or or a turn of phrase that I love, the uh, author Eugene Peterson once spoke, in the title of one of his books, of the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. In other words, putting your face in the direction where God wants us to go, and then putting foot after foot after foot in that direction. not particularly spectacular, It's not going to gain you lots of attention, but it is part of the Christian calling. So, if I can summarize this section, Paul calls on Timothy to share in suffering by being loyal or obedient, like a soldier, disciplined, like an athlete, and hardworking, like a farmer. Obedient, like a soldier, disciplined, like an athlete, hardworking. Like a farmer. When we hear these words, I guess immediately we realize this could be hard. It is not necessarily an easy road that is being described here, and, and of course, it ties into the whole idea of, of challenges and suffering. This runs counter to the values of much of our culture, and sadly, even to teachings in some segments of the church. We are often offered Painless, quick fixes. Where the Bible, in many ways, points us in very different directions. Sure, in the Christian life, don't get me wrong, there will be amazing times of joy, fulfillment, of peace, of wonderful breakthroughs. But there will also be denying ourselves and taking up our cross to follow Jesus. Mark 16 verse 24. This leaves us the the obvious question. And it may be a question that you are especially thinking if you do not yet follow Jesus or are just starting out on this, this path. Why? Why would anyone embrace a life where it's implicitly understood that aspects of this will be difficult? That it will not always be plain sailing? In case of Paul's advice to Timothy, why should Timothy heed the call from a guy in prison saying, join me and suffer? Who would do that? Why would you do that? If we can go back to Ty Lopez from the beginning, why not go for the supercar? Why not go for the quick fix? And that's what I want to answer in this final ex- uh, section, or at least attempt to answer. Maybe the first part of the answer is just to tell you why not. One reason why we shouldn't embrace suffering. Uh, and, and that is to glory in it, or to get people to be really, really impressed because you are, are suffering. In in a previous life, um, I, I used to run a few marathons. Um, don't be too impressed, um, my principle was someone had to bring up the rear, um, and it, it was invariably me, but uh, anyway, if you've ever been to a post-marathon discussion, it is something to behold, uh, or something to, to listen to. Um, you know, people would kind of gather around and, you know, just try and look really tired, I mean, they're, they're obviously really, really tired, anyway, um, and then the conversation would go something like this, oh, you know, I threw up half my guts at 32 kilometers. It was horrible. And someone else would say, oh, that's nothing. I, I lost all my toenails you know, and crawled over the finish line. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of this this real litany of, of how bad and difficult and, and full of suffering it was. However, if you then follow that up by saying, so does that mean you will never do this again? People look at, will look at you like you're crazy. No, of course we will do it again you know, glorying in the suffering, you know, uh, impressing other people with how hard it was, is, is kind of part of the deal. That is not, it's fair to say, what Paul is aiming at here. He's not highlighting the idea of suffering so that he can gain a few kudos from it. So that Timothy and others could be so impressed by the sacrifices that he's making. Instead, he gives... Three really good reasons to be willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus. The first one we, we see in the uh the section on being a farmer. Uh he speaks there very, very briefly, without really expounding on it, on the idea of reward. The hard working farmer will receive or should receive the, the reward. And that's that's part of it. Um in in God's mercy as He keeps us and as He allows us to, to live this life and to serve and glorify Him, um, there will be harvest. And there, there will be a time when, as He keeps us and perseveres with us, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Receive your reward. And for us as believers, that is a wonderful thing to, to look forward to. The, the fact of pleasing our great Savior and Father as we do these things. However, interestingly, in this passage, Paul does not place this front and center. As I said, it's just a brief statement in uh, his his section or his sentence on the farmer. So, obviously, reward is part of the the equation here. But there are two, uh, I would say, in in this section at least, more fundamental reasons that he he brings across. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Why do this? Short answer, remember Jesus. Remember who he is, what he has done for you. By looking at Jesus, we can be astounded at the grace that he poured into our lives and the incredible cost associated with that we then recognize that this was for us and for our salvation and that no sacrifice that we can make for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom can be too great. In other words, we do not do these things to gain salvation from our Lord Jesus. We do not do these things to pull ourselves up by our hair to heaven, but because in his mercy, he made the way. In his mercy, he was the great sacrifice and he saved us so that we can now live for him. And that means looking to him, being utterly inspired by his example and living a life for his glory and in gratitude for what he did. This is why the author of the Hebrews exhorts his readers, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We do this because Jesus did it all for us. More than we can even begin to imagine. We have received such a great forgiveness, so much mercy, that nothing that we can do in response uh, will, will even... uh, remotely uh, compared to that. And finally, we do this for the sake of others. Verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In some mysterious yet powerful way, God uses the labors and the suffering of his people to work out his purposes. He has done it all throughout history, and he continues to do this. Being willing to sacrifice, being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel is therefore not only an expression of our love and devotion to Christ, but a declaration of love towards those whom God will call to be his. In in this sense, suffering for the gospel can be seen as one of the fullest expressions of loving our neighbors as ourselves, obviously part of the great commandment. By living sacrificially, by being willing to go the extra mile, by being willing to take on whatever challenge, we point those around us lovingly to the one who made the greatest of all sacrifices. So ultimately, we are called to express a deep love for our fellow human beings by drawing inspiration from the sufferings of Christ. I started with a, a bit of, well, not really history, but anyway. Um, let's let, let's now go to, quote, unquote, real history uh, in conclusion. I want to tell you um, the story of someone who was very deeply inspired by the sufferings of Christ. And therefore, in uh, God's providence, decided to also take up this call, the, the call to discipleship. Uh, His name was uh, Nikolaus von Zinzendorf, a German count, uh, who would go on to lead what was really the first large-scale Protestant missions effort after the the Reformation. He founded a movement known as the the Moravians that um, are still sharing the gospel around the world. One day, Zinzendorf was meditating on the sufferings of Christ on his behalf, which led to a formulation of a question in his own mind. The question was this. If Christ suffered this much for me, what will I do for him? If Christ suffered this much for me, what will I do for him? Obviously, this was not not meant, again, as a means to gain salvation, rather as a deep expression of a desire to serve Christ, the suffering servant. For Zinzendorf, the answer was to launch a missions movement to... Work for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For us, the answer might be somewhat or maybe a lot less spectacular. However, let us commit to embrace doing our utmost for the sake of him who laid down his life for us. And may he grant us the grace of following him on the road to discipleship, as soldiers, as athletes, and as farmers. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words penned almost two thousand years ago to uh, Timothy. And Lord, we, we thank you that it kind of kind of rings down through the ages to speak to us in a world that uh, pulls us away from things that, that may be challenging. Uh, to promise easy fixes. We pray, Lord, that you will help us not to see the Christian life in this way ever. We recognize that there will be great joy and peace and uh, wonderful moments of refreshing. But we pray that you will also enable us to count the cost of discipleship in every way so that we can follow you obedient as soldiers, disciplined as athletes, and hardworking, As farmers, not for our own sake, Lord, but for your glory and also to serve those uh, whom you placed us amongst so that we can point them the way to the one who made the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great and risen Savior, the Son of the living God. We praise you, Lord. Amen.